Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. This episode, we discuss something wicked this way comes. Sebastian and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And we are doing a Just the Two of Us Halloween special. I just was thinking I wish we were sitting next to each other while we were doing this. Well, sadly we're not because it's better for Mike separation <laughs> to not be sitting next to each other. You just like separation. I like separation. <laughs> From a sound standpoint, it's easier to edit with decent separation. Yes. We are going to be discussing the 1983 film Something Wicked This Way Comes. We're sort of doing a more kid-friendly Halloween-related episode. We did a very non-kid-friendly related episode last week, so I think something a little bit more for the kids is in order. I was really happy to hear that we were going to cover Something Wicked This Way Comes after... Rob Zombie's Halloween, too. It's a nice change of pace. But there's still some spookiness in this. Oh, there sure is. I would say that this movie, if seen by a kid around the time when it came out or on cable later, would probably scare the bejesus out of them, at least in some parts. Now, you're a fan of this film, right? I'm a huge fan of this film. I, I agree with what you just said. This is definitely... Um, got kinder trauma material. Why don't you explain to the listeners what kinder trauma is? Kinder trauma, it's coined by, there's a, a website dedicated to it, which is seeing a horror movie at a, at a young age or something that maybe even wasn't necessarily like a horror movie, but just like a scene in a film that like just kind of scars you when you're young. I guess that's the best definition of it. But yeah, you should, if you haven't, you can follow the, the, the person who um, came up with this term and has a, a website and social media and super fun information and, and uh, nostalgia and fun graphics they make. And it's, you just got to see it and you'll know what I'm talking about. But yeah, this is what I would definitely say. This was a time where Disney was making films like this, that they had scary stuff for kids, like really scary stuff which I loved, like this and uh, The Watcher in the Woods. Mm -hmm. I would put this in the same category. It just They don't do that anymore, unfortunately. No, they're pretty reluctant to do that kind of thing these days. Now, did you see this movie when you were a kid? I did. Not in the theater, probably contributing to why it's a temple trauma, because I wasn't there. Yes, it's, it's all, it's all my fault. fault. Yeah, I definitely saw this at home. Probably, I guess, on TV or VHS. I can't remember. But I, I remember my mom really liking this, too. So it was it's something that I, I can recall seeing a lot when I was younger. You probably saw it on cable because I think that's how I saw it. I was a little older. I was a little too old for this movie when it came out in 1983. I would have been about 13 years old. Way too cool. 
yeah, I was too cool at that point for this. I remember it, though, and I remember seeing parts of it on cable, I think. I definitely remember a lot of the stuff with Jonathan Price. Yeah, you, you find Jonathan Price <laughs> quite sexy in this film. I just remember crushing on him even as a, a young girl back then. I mean, so much that I remember watching and enjoying uh, another film called Haunted Honeymoon that he's in. It has Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner in it and Dom DeLuise. And it has a really good cast, but it was a lot of it was he's he's Mr. Sexy kind of bad man in that too. And I just, yeah, I just thought he was really handsome. That's so funny because to me, Jonathan Price is the doofy guy in Brazil who's just getting kind of the crap kicked out of him <laughs> yeah. by life the whole time. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't see Brazil until much later. So this is my first taste of Price. Yeah, I can see how that would color your perception of him as an mm -hmm. actor. For me, it was the opposite. I yeah. always thought of him as sort of a lovable doof. But he's a great actor, and he definitely shows that he has range. Uh, an interesting sort of side note to this, a uh, few years ago... You and I were coming home to L.A. Yep. from the place where we live now. That's right. And we liked to listen to audiobooks mm -hmm. because it's a long drive, about 14 hours. Yep. And we decided to listen to the audiobook of this, this is as written by Ray Bradbury. I forget who the narrator was, but oh, he was excellent. I didn't forget. I made sure to look it up because I was, we didn't even talk about this, but I was thinking about how we listen to this and how it's still my favorite audiobook narration. And we loved this guy and we're like looking up other things that he did because he was that great of a narrator. And his name is um, Christian Rummel. Well, good job, Christian <laughs> Rummel. In fairness to the audiobook, uh, the writing in it is, I think, absolutely spectacular. Yes, yes. I've never been so sort of impressed by the lyricism of the prose. And what really kind of blows my mind is when I did some research on this, this began as a screenplay. Ray Bradbury originally wrote this as a screenplay to be directed by Gene Kelly. And this was mm. like in the late 50s, 1958. He only wrote it as a book after that project sort of fell apart. So it's really remarkable to me that something that started off as a screenplay, I think made for a infinitely superior book. I mean, I just was completely floored by how beautiful the book was and how evocative it was. And yeah, it was one of my favorite audiobook listening experiences ever. It stays as number one for me. And I've listened to a lot of audiobooks since then. I mean, I remember when we were listening to it and you were super inspired by it. Yes. And I believe that after that, we ran out and purchased and by run out I mean we ordered <laughs> off of Amazon we purchased the movie because uh -huh. you were a fan of the movie That's and right. I hadn't seen it in years if at all all the way through we could only sadly get a DVD of it because that's all that you can buy even now even now they do not seem to have a proper HD transfer of this movie well as to our our dismay recently because we wanted to get a better quality version of this yeah we've checked several times and it's not streaming on disney plus somewhere on social media someone was posting that disney was going to put out a bunch of blu-rays and it was going to be something wicked and watcher in the woods and i just can't find that anywhere so if someone's listening and has the scoop on that please let us know yeah because i i think we have watcher in the woods on dvd also but yes. i would love to have the best quality of both of those films yeah, get off your ass, Disney, and put out these <laughs> movies in HD. At least stream them stream on your dumb, something. boring streaming channel that's only good when you've got The Mandalorian or a Marvel, Marvel show, show going. That's right. Otherwise, it's boring. Yeah, do better, Disney. Do better, Disney. <laughs> but we are here to talk about the film adaptation of this movie, which is written by Ray Bradbury. Right. So his screenplay sustained itself throughout the years to make it eventually to the screen in 1983, directed by a director named Jack Clayton, who I'm not entirely familiar with his work, but he was kind of a workman director of the era and he'd done a lot of movies so he had a reputation it had gone through many many hands over the years the most bizarre of them all was sam peckinpah wow 
Can you imagine oh a Sam gosh. Peckinpah version of this? Like no. coming hot off the straw, <laughs> straw dogs. dogs. <laughs> Clearly, he's the man for the job to bring this whimsical children's tale to the screen. Oof. And weirdly, it wasn't just like Sam Peckinpah was attached for like a minute. He was attached for a long time. He really wanted to do it. And he even got away from it and then came back and almost did it like in the late 70s. Wow. Yeah, very strange. And Jack Clayton, by the way, I was just scrolling through some of the things he did and, and something else of note that we really do like. He was known as a producer, but also another thing that he directed is The Innocents. Oh, right. We do yeah. love that as well. Yes. Uh, the adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, yeah. arguably the best version of that that's been made for the movie screen exactly so yeah i mean he seemed like a pretty decent fit for the material i guess unfortunately the movie had some issues in production i guess some of the producers were unhappy with what the original version of the film looked like and they ended up doing five million dollars worth of reshoots oh my god which in 1983 would have been a ton of money yeah it made 8.4 million off of a 20 million dollar budget they say and you can kind of tell where the reshoots are i was watching it today the kid who plays the blonde will holloway will holloway the irony is that the actor that played Will Holloway, his name's like Vidal, Vidal Peterson. Vidal Peterson. He actually had dark hair. And the actor that played uh, Jim Nightshade. Who's uh, Sean Carson. Sean Carson had light hair. Okay. So they had to dye both of their hair the opposite color. And I'm sure that when they had to do reshoots, the Vidal Peterson, his hair had probably grown out and was dark again. So you can tell he's wearing a pretty crappy wig. You can see it in a few scenes. So I know which scenes that they probably had to redo. Well, I also noticed just in one scene, Will Holloway is starting to get a little bit of a mustache. Yeah. At that age, if they are truly playing the age that they are around that time like you change like certain things are happening really really fast that's the tricky thing about when you have a movie where you have actors that are the right age to play the characters and then you try to do more with it a great example of that recently was it because you remember part one the kids were all Mm -hmm. sort of the right age and they didn't film part one and part two at the same time. So when they filmed part two, they had to do all sorts of digital weirdness to make them look like they were two years right. younger. And when you're like going from like 13 to 15, that's huge. Yeah. I remember noticing it mostly with, with Fen Wolfhard. Because yeah. he definitely was going from looking like a young kid to like a teenager. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's a, it was a big change. So that's just the dice you yeah. roll when you make a story with kids that are going through puberty yeah and the story isn't aging with them yeah. <laughs> you know like you have, you have like a, a small window where you can capture that the harry potter series got away with it because, because the it stories with progressed with yeah them. that's the only way it can work yeah well why don't we get into the 1983 screen adaptation of something wicked this way comes it starts with some blood-like titles that are pretty cool and it starts with ray bradbury's name so you know that this is coming from the mind of ray bradbury apparently ray bradbury and Jack Clayton did have a falling out later on because Jack Clayton had to bring in somebody to do some rewriting for those reshoots Mm -hmm. that I was talking about. And Ray Bradbury didn't like that at all. So they had a falling out. But Ray Bradbury's actually been sort of kind to this movie. You'd think that he would kind of hate it, but he doesn't. He's like, it's not a great movie, but it's a nice movie. So he's softened to it at least. I love the opening title sequence. I love the font that's used. And I just love that you're seeing the train coming and it's just spooky. And I I really enjoy the start to the film. I love the music. I think it's, it's a real mood. The music is done by James Horner. He was apparently sort of a last-minute replacement because another thing that they redid is they didn't like the original music, so he came on sort of as a last-minute replacement. And he is famous for the score for Aliens. Mm. And it's funny because in the scene with the tarantulas, there's definitely (laughs) Aliens music in that he recycled for Aliens a few years later in that scene. 
but I mean, he's a good composer and I think the music is really good. I especially like that theme that we hear that. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of reminiscent of uh, the Imperial March yep. and some other stuff, but uh, it's cool. It fits, mm-hmm. it fits the, the movie. And I like the train coming too. Yeah. It's very cool. Then we're sort of introduced to our setting, which is taking place in Illinois, a town called Greentown. Mm-hmm. It's sometime, I think, in the 30s. Very pastoral. It's fall, and a lot is sort of said about the time of year. It's a very Halloween-time movie because it's all about fall. And we get this sort of voiceover narration that's sort of setting the scene. This is a story about my dad or whatever. In those sort of moments... We do get, I think, a little taste of the prose of Ray Bradbury. This is my favorite time of year, so I'm just so happy. And, and it's just, it's really pretty. I mean, it's it's autumn doing its best. Like, all the leaves have changed, and it's just that perfect, in the way that, yeah, the prose is describing, like, you know, it's that there's a chill in the air, and the smoke you can smell, and the days are getting shorter, and all of that, and it's just so well described, and it's really beautifully shot. So we're introduced to our two main characters, um, Will Holloway and Jim Nightshade. They're in their little schoolhouse because they've been kept after class by their very school marmy looking older woman teacher. I had a teacher who reminded me a lot of her in fourth grade, Mrs. Green. We did not get along. She wasn't that old timey, but she was old and pretty bitter. And we drew mean pictures of her too, just like Jim and Will are doing. They do a pretty spot on caricature of her. And it's pretty, pretty sad because they're talking about how, oh, she once was one of the most beautiful women in town. And this is not in any way a slight on the older actor, actress that they got to play her. She is a really good actress. and I'm sure she was pretty okay looking when she was a younger woman, but there's no way that she is the bombshell that we later see in the movie when she reverts back to her old self. I don't know. It's magic, but the character is spot on and it is harsh. I mean, they do draw this picture and it's they, they kind of nail it. But I also had a mean teacher in fourth grade. Miss Brigham. She didn't really look like her, but but was harsh and mean and everyone was kind of scared of her. Yeah, we all get one, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they're being kept after school for whispering. She calls them her little whisperers. Mm -hmm. But then they run off and we meet Will's dad, Charles Holloway, who is played by the great Jason Robards. Jason Robards had to at least be in his 60s at this time. So he's older and that there's a lot made of that he's older. They talk about his heart. You know, he's got a bad heart or something. And he is full of regrets. He has a pretty sweet job as a lo- the local librarian in the sweet local library. But, you know, he's sort of painted as this sort of wistful, kind man, but he's also regretful. He basically feels that he was too old to be a proper dad for his 12-year-old son, Will. He can't throw a baseball. He talks about that at one point. So that's being sort of set up as his sort of central flaw. I absolutely love Jason Robards. I think he was perfect for this role for so many reasons. And I just really believe that he is going through all of these feelings. And you really just feel his regret and remorse for just not being able to be the dad that he thinks he should be to Will. All of the characters we meet have that sort of element to them. We meet the guy that runs the bar who was the old football hero back in the day, but he's gone off to war or something since, and now he's missing an arm and a leg. Played by an actor who I believe really is missing an arm and a leg. They didn't have CG back then, so that's a real amputee. There's a barber who wishes that there were pretty ladies in town and there's just not enough pretty ladies for his liking there's another guy that runs like the general store who wishes he had a lot of money and uh yeah everybody's sort of wishing they had something they don't yeah that's the town i mean this is why the carnival that is coming is coming to this town because i think they are really vibing off of all of this desire Everyone is experiencing, you know, the school 
teacher is wishing that she was beautiful. And yeah, like you said, that the other guys that are running the different various shops in town are all wishing that they had different lives and, you know, or could go back to the way things were and, and, you know, depending on who it is. And even with Jim Nightshade, we're getting his lack of his dad being around, which he's, you know, telling himself and telling his best friend and, and his best friend's dad, you know, that his, his dad is off in Africa and he's on an adventure and he's like friends with headhunters and all of this. And he really wants to have a dad. He wants to have his dad back. So he, that's his desire, really. Yeah. And like Jim's mom clearly is longing for a husband. Yeah. It's pretty obvious that Jim's dad just took off one yeah. day. But now Jim's making up all these fanciful stories about what an adventurer he is and everything like that. It's all just sort of setting up this idea that everybody in this town really desires something that they don't have. Yep. The town is pretty obviously sort of a back lot. The movie was filmed. The exterior stuff was in Vermont. But once they're in the town, you can sort of tell it's like Warner Brothers back lot or one of those back lots. It looks good, though. They dressed it up nice. It reminds me a little of Stars Hollow. Yes, it looks like the Gilmore Girls town, basically. But, you know, it's well done. Mm -hmm. The sets are good. The production design is all very evocative of the time that they're trying to do. Big time. And I love their houses. Jim and Will live next door to each other. And I think that the houses are perfect for the time period. They're cool houses, too. We also forgot to mention um, Royal Dano, who is is coming into town with his weather vanes yeah. that he's trying to, to sell to the townspeople because there's a storm coming. And, and he ends up near the where the boys are almost at home. And he's like, oh, these houses need protection. And you know, he's looking at him and, and they're like, well, which one needs a protection? And then he ends up saying that it's the one where Jim lives. And, you know, he's like, go ask your father or tell your father that, you know, I can't remember what his name is, some name. And he's like adjusting his his scarf and like getting, you know, ready to meet the man of the house. And, you know, this again, this is a sensitive subject for Jim. So Will starts to say, you know, you don't have a dad or your dad doesn't live there or whatever. And Jim tells Will to shut up and he goes inside. And that's when we first see his mom who's in bed with her cat and just like, oh, could you make yourself something from the icebox? You know, can you or have some peanut butter or something? And he just goes to like this little tin and pulls like a crumpled dollar and some change out and brings it outside and. And Roald Dano's like, you know, how, how much do you have? He's like, that's fine. You know, you've got yourself a weather vane. So he picks the one that has the uh, Egyptian beetles on yeah. it. Scarabs. Scarabs, yeah. The Royal Dano's character is Tom Fury. Tom Fury, that's right. Which is a right. pretty great name. Yeah. And Jim's mom is played by the great mm -hmm. Diane Ladd, who I believe is the mother of... Laura Dern. I know her most from Wild at Heart because yeah. she's so amazingly yeah. over the top in that movie. But I mean, of course, she was... She's done so many other things, too. You know, she'd been working for, for many, many years by the time she made that movie. But she's great. And Royal Dano is great. Now, let me ask you this. And I, this is something that I kind of struggle with. Even in the book, what is the deal with the lightning rod salesman? Like, what is his purpose? Because he comes in, he sells them a lightning rod, and then later... Mr. Dark and the carnival capture him like he's got some sort of purpose and meaning in the story and I can never really fully figure it out. Well something that is mentioned later on has when when they're at the library and Jason Robards is like finding out about the carnival folks they're called the autumn people and he's reading about the history because his, his father had been like the preacher in town and this had been you know like 30 to 40 years prior or whatever of his father's journal and one of the things he says about the autumn people you know and he's basically describing what they come to town and what they do but they have to leave when the storm comes or is there something okay. tied in with the storm and i think mr dark and his crew believe that tom fury knows when the storm is coming gotcha. so okay. because he's got the weather vanes no they definitely do because that's what they're interrogating they're, right him they're about. like torturing him because they want him to yes. say when the storm's coming and he's just kind of out of his mind 
and is just like Tom Fury, blah blah blah. You know, right. like he's he's doesn't. I don't think he knows. Well, then the storm does come at the end, and the yeah. the carnival is all sort of sucked up into the storm. Spoiler alert. That's good. That makes sense. Yeah, he they see him as this sort of emissary of the storm, and the storm is what they're afraid of. Yes. So. Okay, after this, basically, it's just the carnival is coming to town. We're getting these sort of foreshadowing that they're coming. Some of the townspeople are like, ooh, can you hear that train coming Mm -hmm. in the wind? And Jason Robards is like, nobody comes here in autumn. Like, there's nobody coming. And, like, the barber's like, no, I can smell the perfume of Mm -hmm. the beautiful ladies. It seems like the people who are going to be most affected by the carnival are picking up on it. Because even Jem is like, he's like, listen, there's music. You know, like, everyone's hearing something different. Jason Robards goes outside because he had stopped off at the bar to have a drink and a cigar. And that's where his doctor's there. And he's like, remember, you can only have one drink and one cigar or whatever. And we that's where we meet Ed, the the bartender who's missing the arm and the leg and all of that. And he um, goes outside and the wind's really picking up. And then he looks into the window, like where the coffin is. I love to hang out near the coffin that's where store. You can always find you. I like to just hang out by the coffin store and stare forlornly at the window. I'll be in one of those soon. Someday. And like, it's so weird because he's looking at the coffin and then it turns into this like block of ice. And then in the block of ice is the Pam Greer character yep. who's called the dust witch. Mm-hmm. She's never referred to that in the movie, but that's her character. She's some sort of magical mm-hmm. being that is kind of a all purpose temptress. Like whatever your thing is, she's going to kind of be there to sort of tempt you and freak you out and freak you out. Freaky stuff. Too. Right. At some <laughs> points she turns into like kind of a monster mm-hmm. looking thing. Pam Greer is really gorgeous oh my God. in this. I mean, she's gorgeous anyway, but she's really beautiful. She doesn't have a lot to say, but that's not really what her character is about. I, I was thinking about that as we were watching it this time. Like, I, I only really recall her speaking, like, maybe two lines or something. And one of them is when she's repeating what Mr. Dark is telling her to do, like, as far as, like, a spell for uh-huh. the boys. And then I think one other time when she gets on the Ferris wheel with the guy who's the, the guy who owns the store who's obsessed with money. Yeah. I think she might say, like, one word No, to him. she doesn't. No, she doesn't. She didn't even say a word to him then. So I think it's really just the line from Mr. Dark. It's someone, somebody comes in, she's sort of like a fortune teller with a crystal oh, ball. Right. And she, she says with, a few she, lines. She does, when the guy comes in who um, is the barber. Yeah. She's like, you have a pole that's swirling outside. Yep. And yeah, so that that's about it. There's that. And then when she's, like, doing a spell later. But it fits for her character. I mean, she's not a big talker. Yeah, it's the stuff with her is cool, but it's also sort of surreal. And I don't really know exactly what it's supposed to mean. Like, I don't really understand why Jason Robards is seeing her there. I don't either. I just thought they were trying to show something weird or, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, he sees her and we know it's her because she's got like this red ring. Yeah. And she's in the block of ice. And then later he looks back and the ice is broken and the rings on the ground. But then we see that block of ice on the train coming in. Yeah. It doesn't take me out of it or ruin anything. And I'm sure I didn't even care when I was a kid and I was watching this. But, you know, now after many watches, it's kind of like, huh, that doesn't really all jive. It's those moments in this movie that actually remind me of something like Phantasm Mm -hmm. or... Yeah. Suspiria, you know, these sort of dream logic-y type horror movies. Or Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. Or Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. Yep, that's definitely the connection here. (laughs) Yeah, they're just sort of surrealistic moments that don't fully track in terms of airtight logic. It doesn't bother me either, but I don't really fully understand what I'm supposed to be getting from it other yeah. than like ooh, that's weird yeah i mean it's it's sort of like harbinger moments or whatever you know setting up what's to come well and i think with with that in particular it's because jason robards is outside and he's having a cigar and the wind's picking up and you, we get to see the back of uh jonathan price mr dark and he's just pitching littering everywhere just pitching his his flyers around and the winds just taking them all over your crush jonathan price was not the first choice for this role which makes sense because in 1983 Jonathan Price was not well known at all 
outside, I think, of like British TV and stage. They originally wanted either Peter O'Toole or Christopher Lee. Mm. Christopher Lee seems like the obvious yeah. choice. I remember listening to the book. You probably didn't have this experience because you were more familiar with the movie, but I had sort of forgotten that Jonathan Price was this character. So I didn't picture him in my mind when I was hearing the book. I pictured a much more sort of suave type of guy, which I mean, obviously you find Jonathan Price suave. I do. He, he does look suave in this movie, not to take it away from him. He's, his hair is kind of longer mm-hmm. than it normally is, and he's got kind of a cool beard and he looks really good in his tailored suit and hat so i mean it works i'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying that's not who i went to in my mind i pictured somebody kind of more i guess maybe like peter o'toole when he was younger or something sort of more suave Mm -hmm. devil type of guy christopher lee is more dracula to me so if you were going to do it in the 90s you could do it with like gary oldman Mm. you know what i mean post dracula gary in fact Gary Oldman kind of looks like him in scenes in Dracula when he's walking around with a top yep. hat and stuff. So Gary Oldman would have been a good choice. Something else about this film is, boy, do Jim and Will sneak out a whole lot. They really do. Well, they have this sweet setup because they're next door neighbors and they have this tree between their houses and they have their windows that are open. Their bedroom windows face one another. But when we see Will go out of his window, he like has like a rope to go like kind of hold on to as he crosses the tree then when he when he first goes up to um see jim on the roof before they are sneaking out really and jim's putting the weather vane up there's even like these rungs in the roof to climb up on yeah. like i would love this if i was a kid like this well, would they have be these awesome. long slanted roofs that almost yeah. kind of slant right into, into each, each other. other yeah yeah it's like the best best friend setup you yes. could have i think the next thing that happens is they hear the train coming and they have to go investigate what's going on and they go and kind of just lay down and are watching the train go by on the tracks and we're seeing like the signs for the carnival like on you know on the the cars and you know the different things attractions that are going to be there I think that's when we see the block of ice with Pam Greer in it and then it's like immediately set up yeah I mean it's not like just cinema sloppy editing no, the boys are like, it can't be set up already, you yeah. know, because it, it is. It's like, it's crazy. It's already just like, boom. It's it's like they've been there forever. So they, you know, go over to start checking out what's happening at the carnival, sneaking around. But the carnival isn't really open to the public yet. No. So they're sort of getting a glimpse behind the scenes yeah. of what's going on. It's already set up. Pam Greer's trailer is open and they go into Pam Greer's trailer and they're kind of looking around and we don't see like kind of back in the shadows and then all of a sudden there's a, a spider or something tarantula right which will play later yeah. into things and so they freak out and they just run off screaming will's dad jason robards has also gone out because he's like i guess i'm just restless because the storm and he decides to go back to work so he's like back at the library shelving books or whatever so he's out so will gets back home and then when Jason Roberts comes in, Will's sitting on the steps inside the house. And so he, they kind of start to have a heart to heart. It's like three o'clock in the morning at this point, too. But Jason Roberts doesn't know that he's been out. He just thinks that Will can't sleep. Yeah. And this is when he brings up that at three o'clock in the morning is when a lot of people die. Yeah. And, and you know, and Will's like, don't say that, you know, like. And he's like, old people die, you know, but then that's not comforting because Will still thinks his dad is old, you know. So this is when one of the couple of times where Jason Robards is trying to, like, have this meaningful discussion with him about his remorse. Yes. And Will's not having it. He doesn't want to have, like, serious times. He's just like, I'm just going to go to bed. Jason Robards calls it the midnight of the soul, three in the morning. And let me tell you, I have been up at three in the morning. You sure have. And it... Definitely is the midnight of the soul. I will say that for sure. Ray Bradbury nailed that. I definitely have different feelings about it. And as now I'm, you know, not the age or or near the age of far gone from the age of, of Will and Jim, you know, as you're coming out more on the getting closer to the Jason, Jason Robards side of things, or even some of the other townspeople, you know, that are the grownups, because this film is, it's about the kids, 
but it's more than that. Like, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely it's, about the grownups, too. It, I don't know. It's kind of maybe it's a little something for everyone because it's it's the kids and, and the kids doing their thing and the kids being kids and being afraid that no one's going to believe them, that whole thing. And like no one's going to listen to us type thing because all this stuff is happening, you know. But then you have all of the the stuff that's going on with the adults and what their their longing and their yearning and their remorse. And speaking of the adults, the next kind of major thing that happens is the adults all go to the carnival. It's open the next day and they're all there. And, you know, we see the guy who wants money win a bunch of money and he's all excited because he gets a free cigar that's been rolled in the creamy thighs of Cuban women or whatever. Which is super creepy because he had said that earlier yes. to Jason Robards. He was like, he, Jason Robards had stopped by to get a cigar and the proprietor was like, do you ever play the numbers? And he's was like, no. And he was like, I'm going to win one day. And then we're not going to have these cheap cigars. We're going to have the Havanas that are rolled by the plumped thighs of beautiful Cuban women or whatever. He says this line. Mm -hmm. And then when he wins this money at the carnival, this is the big Mr. Cougar, the big burly, yes. like red haired ginger lumberjack looking man. Yeah. He hands him, you know, the cigar and he was like a fine Havana rolled by the plump thighs of beautiful Cuban women or whatever. He says the exact same thing back to him. Then he goes to hop on the Ferris wheel with beautiful Pam Greer and that'll be his last ride. Yes. And uh, we also see the football player guy. Uh, he uh, wins like uh, one of those strength contest things. With and the he, big hammer. With a hammer. And then he goes over to the House of Mirrors, which is going to figure into the climax. And he looks at himself in the mirror and he sees that he now has his arms and legs again. And he goes inside the House of Mirrors and then to his fate. And um, we also, as we said, we see the barber go in and have his fortune read by Pam Greer. And then we also get a very titillating. Very titillating. Very titillating uh, belly dancing scene. That's right. There's a tent with belly dancers uh, in it, and we get some little people actors uh, around this time. They're with the carnival. One of them was the gentleman from Freaks, yep. and he's also in um, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. He lived a long time. Good for him, because Freaks is like 1932. That's right. So this is a solid 50 years later. Mm -hmm. He goes into the tent. Jim is watching through a peephole, mm -hmm. and we're seeing the sexy belly dancing, and the belly dancers pull the barber up on stage with him and they're just all like gathered around him and rubbing on him and and i mean we're just seeing like kind of cuts where the barber is then naked it's pretty steamy after that the boys wander into a carousel that is closed off and they sort of sneak in there and in there they witness mr dark jonathan price and he is instructing one of his minions, the Mr. Cougar character, to get on the carousel. And Mr. Cougar gets on the carousel and the carousel spins backwards. Right. And we get this sort of special effect that hasn't held up particularly well over time. But, you know, it's the early 80s. And it spins backwards. And now Mr. Cougar is a little ginger child. And he is sent off to some task that we will find out what it is. Well, because also we forgot to mention at the House of Mirrors, we also get their teacher stumbling out of the House of Mirrors earlier. Yes. And she's like dazed and confused. And she's like, oh, it's my whisperers. And she's like, I think I just, you know, I'm, I'm just feeling a little faint. I need to go home and rest. My nephew is coming later. Again, not entirely sure as to what that all kind of means. Like she wants to be beautiful, but then we're going to find out when she gets her beauty back that she goes blind. But then she also had this nephew. It seems kind of convoluted like one thing or the other either she wants her nephew or she wants her beauty i mean maybe because she's going to lose her sight like they feel like they need to have somebody there to help her in some way or something i don't know but i don't even know if that was i mean because that's obviously not her nephew like what the hell happened to her real nephew you know what i mean like this version of baby mr cougar is not her nephew i know that's why i'm saying it's confusing i don't yeah. i don't understand why her character needs to get her youth back but also needs 
needs a nephew. It seems like two characters have been fused into one. One character who's a woman who misses her nephew who's gone away and hasn't seen or something. And then another character who's a woman who used to be beautiful and wants her beauty back. Yeah, it could be. I also think this is like the cruelest, like, monkey paw shortest time of like getting your wish across the board yeah it's just like literally like the guy who's the proprietor of the store wins the money and gets on the ferris wheel and he's done and it's like the barber like gets to be with the belly dancing women and then that's it and the school teacher is gonna you know go home and she's gonna like get to see herself pretty for like less than a minute and then she's gonna go blind yeah (laughs) i mean usually in these type of stories, you get a little bit more before it's taken away. Yeah. But this is just like, this is really cruel. Yeah. Mr. Dark's pandemonium carnival is really not the place you want to go for your wish fulfillment. No, they really are not messing around. Like, they're just like, we're going to get our sad souls and just gobble them all up and just get as many as we can. And there's no time to waste because there's a storm a coming. So the boys are discovered seeing what they shouldn't see. And this sort of establishes this thing where Mr. Dark wants to get Jim and... Will, will because they stumbled into something that they shouldn't he's not mad the first time he meets him like he invites them to come back to the carousel later yeah it's when they see later on when um tom fury is being electrocuted like they're yeah. when they're like torturing him that's when the boys see that and that's when mr dark is like they've seen too much and that's when he tells pam greer do whatever to them. I don't, I don't remember what the threat is. but Basically like, go get, get them, them or whatever. And she sends spiders after right, them. Right, right. Well, like freak them out or whatever. But yeah, he's trying to trying to get them. I have to say, and I don't remember what the motivation was from the book, but in the movie, it's really muddy. It doesn't really track that well because it's like, yeah, at first he isn't really out to get him. He's like, come back later. Here's tickets or yeah. whatever. Yeah, you can come back and ride the, the carousel. The carousel. You can ride the carousel, you know, and I do love and this is definitely from the book, the way he sort of is kind of focused on Jim. Right. Jim, nightshade, dark and nightshade. What a great sounding combination that that would be. He's really trying to seduce Jim. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very clear in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's not really so much about Will. He knows Will has a father. That's not what Will is longing for. Jim is longing for a father. So Mr. Dark could be that father for him, seduce him into to working with him in the carnival, and he'll let him ride the carousel be older. and be older, which is what Jim really wants more yep. than anything is to be an adult. Right. So all of that works. It's just this kind of like, oh, now I'm out to get them. One of the big set pieces that we get is, you know, after Jim and Will have seen the lightning rod salesman being attacked, uh, Mr. Dark has the dust which send magic after them and the, it sort of manifests in an, a spider attack. You know, it's basically just a scene where we get a ton of tarantulas crawling around and the boys are all freaked out about it. This was kind of a thing in the late 70s and early 80s. The Brady Bunch had a famous tarantula related episode. People were really afraid of tarantulas. Which they're totally nice spiders. Not poisonous. Not poisonous at all. Like a lot of people like to have them as companions or whatever. I mean, but at the time they were, especially in film and television, were perceived to be terrifying. It's sort of a silly kid scene. Originally, the plan was there was going to be like a giant hand that like came crashing in to grab them, but they couldn't pull it off of the special effects. So this was one of the things that got rewritten. I I think all of the spider stuff was added later in rewrites. And that's why if you watch the scene, you can clearly see that the kid playing uh, Will is wearing a wig. It's clearly a reshoot. And I'm sure that's why it was one of the expensive reshoots because, you know, there's like the ceiling cracks and there's a lot of sort of special effects going on. You know, the special effects are very early 80s. They're fine for the time, but by today's standards, probably they might look a little hokey in some regards. I'm sure a lot of kids saw this scene when they were young and it probably freaked them out. For sure. We should also mention that the Dust Witch Pam Greer sends her magic to go get them or whatever. It's like this green kind of swirling thing that's going and it finds 
Jim's house because of the the weather vane. Will goes again over to Jim's place and you know that's where all that happens and then they both wake up in their separate beds drenched in sweat so it's kind of like it you know didn't really happen type thing. Yeah it's sort of a dream. Right but very real vivid dream. They go to church the next day with their families they're in their, in their little suits and they're leaving church and that's when they spot the carnival. Mr. Dark comes into town and, you know, at this point, Jason Robards is sort of like cluing into like something's not right here and he's looking for the boys and the boys are like hiding in this drain or whatever, this grate under this grate and Mr. Dark is questioning Jason Robards in the bar and then outside the bar. Great scene. It's my favorite scene i think in the film and it's one of the most memorable to me he's in the bar and he's asking jason robards if he knows the boys or whatever and he's just like jason robards is like i I gotta go and he goes outside and then he can see that they're in the grate below and then mr dark is right outside this like i just would never forget he opens his hand and he's got like a tattoo of will's face and he's got a tattoo of jim's face and it's just so creepy and well done. Yeah. And we have seen earlier yeah. when the boys met Mr. Dark in the carousel room, he shows them his arm and he's got these tattoos that are moving yeah. on his arm. He in the book is referred to sometimes as the illustrated man, right? Correct. Yes. And Ray Bradbury also has a short story That's collection right. called The Illustrated Man. It's not the same character. It's just a concept he clearly was taken by a character with tattoos that has some sort of meaning or movement to them. That's just a Ray Bradbury thing. It's one of his picadillos. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, isn't he the illustrated man? Like, that's because I bet I know it's different because we have the short story. It's a different thing. It's just an idea he liked and he used it in a couple of things. Yeah. But yeah, this scene is great between Jonathan Price and Jason Robards. You know, first of all, can you imagine how weird it would be if some dude came up to you in the street and he's got tattoos on his hands of like your son son and and his his friend friend. yeah Yeah, there's so much going and it's just so intense i mean they're both really good actors yeah jason robards is you know trying to lie to protect them jason robards and the doctor had gone in the bar because they're noticing that ed the, the gentleman who had lost his limbs was not there and they're like i mean everybody's like shuttered up like the the barbers like closed due to illness like all these shops are closed now because the people have disappeared and in the meantime the carnivals decided to have a parade yes. through town and it's this like really sort of creepy parade where jonathan price is just kind of walking out front and you know they've got like camels and all sorts of crazy stuff people with weird masks and there's this one guy that looks almost like a monster or something yeah and And there's and uh, some women that look kind of alien like like with the masks and stuff too there's a lot going on there and at first the the parade is kind of jaunty right well jim is like oh like a parade and will's like no it's not a parade it's a search party like they're looking for us and we can't go home because they'll you know they'll kill our families or whatever so that's when they go and hide under the grate which is great 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 (laughs) and um but yeah when they go when Mr. Uh, Jonathan Price goes and Mr. Dark goes into the bar and he's asking Jason Robards and the doctors in there too about the boys. You know, Jason Robards like, oh, are they in some sort of trouble? And, Mr., you know, Mr. Dark is like, oh, no, no, no. They've won prizes. You know, I want to make sure they get their prizes. And so when he confronts him again outside, Jason Robards is trying to like really play it cool. And he's like, oh, I wouldn't want these two young boys not to get their prizes. And he's like, yeah, let's see there. That, that one right there is Milton Blumquist. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, and this is Avery Johnson or something like that. Like, he, you know, get, gives these fake names. And Mr. Dark is not having it. Nope. He's just like, uh, no, I know who they are. The school teacher who's who recently went blind told me who they are. They're her whisperers. Yeah. So he's just kind of fucking with them. In the meantime, Mr. Dark, because he's so angry, starts to like squeeze his fists together and blood is this is like what I remember from seeing this when I was young, is blood is coming down his fist and then it's also trickling down like Will's head. Because it's Will's tattoo that he's squeezing Uh, i didn't catch that oh my god no that's like that was that was 
so terrifying to me when I was young because I was like, whoa. And then the scene ends with Mr. Dark rejoining the parade, but now it's become like a funeral, funeral march. march. Yes. It's like they're playing like dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Jason Robards drops his cigar so he can bend down to the grate as the funeral procession parades going by and everyone's watching him. So he can whisper to the boys and he's like, I think he says to them, like, meet me at the library later. They end up at the library because Will's dad has sort of summoned them there and he's done some research about the Autumn people. It's a really great scene because we're getting sort of the backstory as to what the you know Autumn people are about. They sort of feed on these Desires, longings. yeah. You know, and he's reading about the story when he, his father encountered them back in like the late 1800s or whatever. And then the door opens and closes. And, you know, they're like, what's that? Well, the boys know. They're like, the boys he's here. Know. He's like, Mr. Dark is here. So Jason Robards tells them to go hide. So yes. they do hide like kids would. You know, they crawl up like to the top of a bookshelf. And yeah. they're, they're hidden up there, which is exactly some sort of hiding that I would do at that age. Mm -hmm. So this is a really great scene because this is Mr. Dark confronting again Charles Holloway, Jason Robards' character. Basically, Jason Robards is like, I know who you are. I know why you're here, you know, and, and he, you know, says my dad, you know, had journaled about when you were here before. And Mr. Dark is very harsh about his father saying what a weak man he was and all of that and... And then he just knows that the Achilles heel for Jason Robards is that he feels like he's old. And so he just really digs in there and starts saying, you know, if you let me know where Will and Jim are hiding, I can give you more time. I can make you younger again. He's got the journal in his hand. And I always remember this scene, too, because he starts ripping off the pages and they like kind of flame out when he does it but he's like how about 30 would you like to go back to 30 30 you have you're so full of life and da, 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 30 going 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 gone and he does that for year after year because jason robards is not going to tell him where the kids are hiding and he's just you know finally gets up to 52 and you know that's where he stops yeah it's an ominous <laughs> age to stop at a couple of things we should say i mean one major thing that's going on here is we now sort of know because of things that Jason Robards has said and we're getting sort of flashes of it in the scene. The big thing that Jason Robards regrets, the moment that really made him feel that he was too old to have this young son happened years ago. Uh, Will was like four or five or something and he was in a river and the current of the river started to pull him away. And uh, Jason Robards couldn't go in to get him because he, his father had never taught him how to swim. So he was unable to save his own son. And a man jumped in to save him, who ironically was Jim Nightshade's dad, Harry, who was just drinking by the river yeah. <laughs> and just happened to save the day. And he pulled Will out of the river. Well, and he had also said about it being... Um... Jim's dad that you know was this man that was just like you said drinking by the river and didn't even hesitate like once he saw Will was in the river he just like jumped right in whereas Jason Robards was paralyzed because he doesn't know how to swim and you know couldn't do anything about it and just had a lifetime of regret about this like his son's life also in this scene you know, as Mr. Dark is sort of approaching him and they have that moment where it's like, I know who you are and everything. Mr. Dark has this sort of little speech about who they are and everything. He says, and butter our plain bread with delicious pain. <laughs> I want to butter my plain bread with delicious pain. Yes, because, yeah, Jason Robards is like, you know, you're basically feeding on the, the people of this town. Yes. And yeah. You, you definitely need to butter your bread with delicious pain. But Jason Robards isn't going to give up his son or Jim. And so Mr. Dark sicks the dust witch on him. And he's like, give him a little taste of death so that he knows it when it comes for him later. And she just basically comes up to Jason Robards and kind of gives him like kind of a... She slows down slows her on his heart. heart with her ring or whatever. And meanwhile, uh, Mr. Dark is going up into the, the upper regions of the library looking for Jim and will 
and he finds them hiding up in the shelves and just plucks them out of the shelves, basically, and absconds with them. This is when we hear the Dust Witch, Pam Greer, speak some lines at this point, because he says, you know, hide their tongues or something like that until I'm ready to hear from them again. Right. And my whisperers or something like that. And so she's kind of repeating what he's saying and kind of, you know, going in front of their mouths. And so they, then now they both can't talk, you know, they're, they're going through town and they're just kind of out of it a little bit too. And they, it's kind of some, like, they're just kind of, I don't know if they're, they're supposed to be kind of out of it or dazed or they're just depressed because they're getting taken to what is possibly going to be the end. And this is also when uh, Mr. Dark is really laying it on thick to Jim. And he's like, we could be dark and nightshade, nightshade and dark. You could be my son. And, you know, really promising him all of these things. So he takes them back to the carousel. He takes Jim to the carousel. And I think um, Jason Robards follows after them. I got to say, this ending, I think, is pretty weak altogether. It feels just kind of like, oh, we got to throw a bunch of stuff together and make it all work. I can tell there's sort of reshoot elements here, like Jason Robards ends up in the House of Mirrors. Right, and that's where his this whole thing with his son who's in there, because this is where he's getting more fucked with with the Dust Witch and stuff, and, and he's seen actually looking into the, the Hall of Mirrors and seeing that scene replay where Will is drowning. You know, it's all this stuff just feeding into like it's all about the negativity and feeding into it's the desires. But like, I think it's basically like you're lacking. Yeah. It's whatever you're lacking and that like feeling that you're not enough or, you know, whatever that is. And and that is across the board with all the people that, you know, it's like things that they want, but they're also feeling like they're they're missing something where they are. Some of them are physically missing something like missing limbs, you know? Yeah. And so it's just really playing into all of that. And like it's making him you're seeing him in the Hall of Mirrors also or House of Mirrors or whatever, like aging, too. Yeah. Like he's getting older. Anyway, then all of a sudden Will is in there, too. And he's like, I love you, Dad. Yeah, because Mr. Dark's like, your son hates you. He hates you for being old or whatever. I mean, it's just playing on his insecurities, digging into his insecurities. Thematically, it all works, you know, and and I'm sure, you know, I don't remember the specifics of what happens in the book. You know, I, I do remember in the book, this climax was very involved and was very intense. Yeah. I'm, all I'm saying is in the movie, it just kind of falls flat. Like, because suddenly Will's there and he's just like, I love you, Dad. And he looks like about two years older and he's got a mustache. <laughs> I know. And he's wearing a bad wig. wig. And then Jason Robards just like smashes the mirror. Because, of course, that's what you're going to do if you're in a house of mirrors seeing something bad. You smash the mirror. Well, it turns into water and then he's pulling his son out of the water. Right. And, yeah. Cause that's... Because of that's the whole thing. And that doesn't even make sense because he was four or five when that happened. Right. He's like now 14. It's just but yeah, clumsy. it's it's just kind of it's just messy, which is unfortunate. And I, yeah, I remember this being way better in the book. I, I can't tell you exactly what happened, but I remember us being like, ah, when we were listening to it. So yeah, it, yeah, it sounds like, you know, they just had to kind of put something together and and, and that happens. And then all of a sudden they go to the carousel. And, yes. and that's when Mr. Dark has Jim on the carousel and they're getting ready to go forward because he's going to have Jim be older yes. because that's what he wants. Also, side note doesn't really make sense for mr dark to be on the carousel because he doesn't need to be any older right but he is going to ride the carousel i guess with him but uh, at the same time i think this is when the the storm has come and the lightning yeah hits the carousel it goes through like royal dano and then yeah. goes in this carousel again again it's just kind of it's like kind of stuff like, and and we you know we just watched this it's just like a bunch, it's just of, a shit bunch of shit happening so they get Jim off the carousel you know you know, Jim, you know, we, we love you or whatever. You know, you're my best friend. Don't ditch me and all yeah. this stuff. And he gets off. He like falls off the carousel. But Mr. Dark is like stuck to it and it's going for it. It's going faster and faster and faster yeah. until he's just a bag of bones, which I also do remember that being pretty freaky as a kid. Very similar to the special effects they use in Life Force, because in Life Force, they had these sort of like lightning effects that would turn people into desiccated corpses basically it's same sort of kind of thing that's happening to mr dark he becomes like this puppet that's 
getting older yeah. and stuff. It's fun. It's a fun special effect. You can tell they threw a lot of special effects at this climax. They're like, oh, we don't really know what we're doing. Let's just throw a lot of special effects and stuff. I mean, you know, it hangs together okay. I did notice a review from Gene Siskel at the time. He was like, the climax is just terrible. Like, it's really too bad. They really whiffed the ending kind of got to agree with him i mean it's not it doesn't ruin it for me but it's not good well yeah and it 100 percent doesn't ruin it for me either but it's just it's just messy yeah it's just it's it's really a messy ending i tell you what like this is one of those movies that i think could really stand to get a kick-ass remake this would be a great remake they could do something really really good yeah like get mike flanagan on that yeah, Mike Flanagan or, you know, uh, Carrie Fukunaga yeah. or somebody, somebody with a vision, you know, because now you could have special effects sequences that could really match the imagination of what Ray Bradbury wrote in the book or go in a different direction or whatever. You could do a lot. I think the problem is they kind of have big ideas and they can't really pull it off with whatever technology they had in 1983. A lot of it's clunky. It's not really holding together that well you know the theme elements are there you know like the stuff with the dad and will you know i get what they're trying to do thematically it's all fine it just becomes kind of a big mess i just you know i feel like yes the the effects could could be done better now at this point if this were to be remade but you could also just provide even more depth and spend more time with some of these characters because this does clock in at like one hour and 30 minutes. I mean, it's pretty tight. Yeah, it seems cut down to yeah. the bone. But I mean, this could definitely be a two hour film and that would be fine. Yeah, I don't think it needs to be more than like a two hour or two no. hour and 10 minute movie. No. But yeah, 90 minutes is just too short. Yeah, it's not enough time. Two hours would be good. You know, Disney at the time, they were mostly known for making animated kids movies and animated kids movies are never more than an hour and a half. I can see why the Disney mentality at the time was keep it 90 minutes. This is for kids, you know. I get why the running time is what it is, but it's detrimental to the story. Sure. It needs more time. No, it definitely does. And I, I completely understand the thought process behind having it at 90 minutes. But I'm just saying, if we're if we're getting into the fantasy of let's have a remake of this, let's do it. Let's do it right. Yeah. Yeah, so after that, the storm comes and a big tornado basically sucks up the carnival into the sky and we get these sort of special effects shots of like miniatures of the carnival getting sucked off of its moorings, which is cool. Those look fun. I like old school miniature effects. Kind of a little bit Wizard of Ozzy in a way. Mm -hmm. And then it's a bright, happy day. And Jason Robards has found some youth to his step. At like one point, he's like, sing and dance or something like as shit's going down. Well, yeah, when shit's going down at the carnival and Will is upset because he thinks Jim is dead. So he's like, you know, they don't they feed off of your tears. Like, you know, whoop it up like a whooping crane or whatever. And he's just like, real. it's really awkward. But he's yeah. like trying to like, laugh. he's like, laugh, laugh and all this stuff. So that that's what happens there because the whole thing is they feed on sadness and, and lacking and want, you know, desire and not enough and all of that all the bad feelings there's a sweaty desperation to a lot of this yeah. last 10 minutes of yeah. movie <laughs> this well, sweaty desperation of them trying to <laughs> hold it together somehow I know. well even like at the end you know it's like it's it's the storm has passed and so like they take off together and they're kind of running through the field and and that's all good but then like they kind of go through town and they're like circling around the the barber pole and stuff it's like really just trying to be too it's too joyous for me. Like it feels kind of forced. And we should say all the townspeople that were affected by this monkey's paw thing are restored yeah. to their form. They don't die. Well, yeah. And I think it happens when you're right, because it's um, Tom Fury, like he takes his lightning rod and he stabs the dust witch. Right. And I think that kind of sets off yes. everything with the carousel, but then also breaks the spell yes. of all the townspeople seem right. to come out of It's like her their... magic. They'd become like mannequins mm -hmm. or something. It's unclear, but they're like waxwork yeah. statues of w themselves in their new idealized forms or yeah, whatever. whatever it's again messy and vague yeah. but yeah the uh 
the dust, which is she's the magical entity that's keeping them in whatever state they're in, granting their wishes and yeah. taking it away. The end. Now, uh, as I said, this movie cost $20 million and only made $8 million. So it is a tentpole trauma. Why do you think it failed? I guess kind of who is it for is one thing is because it's supposed to be it's Disney and it's supposed to be for kids. And it's again, this is the type of Disney, like I mentioned earlier, that I do like where they were making scarier things. But I don't know how it was marketed. I can't remember at all, like what, how it was presented at the time. As far as getting people in the theater, it might have seemed too, maybe it was marketed and it seemed too scary. And then like people who were closer to your age were like, I'm not going to see that. That's not, that's lame, you know? So maybe it was just hard to find the right audience. And then the word of mouth probably wasn't that great. I enjoyed it, but I don't know if other people who went to the theater, you know, if they were older maybe and saw it like either thought it wasn't scary enough or thought like it was kind of a mess because it kind of is in certain parts maybe it just had a hard time finding an audience and then the people who did see it the word of mouth wasn't great i think that's all of that i also think that this was just in a downturn for disney this was just in an era when disney was sort of losing a lot of its original sort of core fan base they were trying to do different things they'd been doing different things for a number of years at this point and i think they were just kind of stumbling Ironically, a lot of the stuff they did at this time is stuff that you and I like. I know Troy likes a lot of the Disney stuff from this time because it is weirder and it's dark. But I think the brand was just a little tarnished at this point, you know, and it wouldn't really recover until later around 1986 when Little Mermaid had happened. Little Mermaid basically brought Disney back from the brink of annihilation so to speak they'd been on a downward slope i think people saw that this was disney they were like oh i want another one of these dark disney movies that we don't want on top of it i think that it probably didn't get great reviews i i blame the ending mostly i think the ending is really where it kind of loses its way and that's too bad because it's really only like 10 minutes that i would say is kind of bad but that last 10 minutes is the last 10 minutes people see right. and they walk out the door and they're like, eh, it wasn't that good. You know, right. that can kind of change the whole trajectory of how people feel about a movie. It literally leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so I think that was probably hurting the word of mouth. And there wasn't also like a big, you know, I don't think any of those actors were a big draw to come into the no. theater because, I mean, Jason Robards is a name, but... No, like you said, you didn't really know who Jonathan Price was. Jason Robards isn't bringing in the kids. No, but I mean, and the kids were unknowns. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there wasn't a name to get people in there. Plus, either. it's like a period piece. And no. this is the early 80s. It wasn't a big time for like period pieces. And people were running like sci-fi and yeah. stuff. It just wasn't really fitting the times, the zeitgeist, so to speak. It would have been a lot bigger if it had come out like in the late 50s or the early 60s or something. I think that would have been more the time for this type of movie. It just wasn't the right time. I think you could do it now. I think now would be great. Yeah, because people are kind of into more nostalgic-y type of things. Well, and supernatural stuff, too. Yeah. Like, I, I think overall people are, are still really into that. So some sort of supernatural, like going back to this time. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it could totally work, and I think you could get the right kids cast in there yeah. and it just wasn't the right time all right i'm gonna go stare at a coffin through a storefront window i'm gonna go look through a peephole and see some belly dancers mm. and i'm going to butter our plain bread with delicious pain that about does it today for tentpole trauma if you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, 
One day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.